Direct lenders in the private debt space have arguably been tested more thoroughly during the COVID and post-COVID eras than during any other period in the history of the asset class. Out of that testing, new best practices have begun to emerge, and with new turbulence arising around every corner, the value of experience becomes more appreciable than ever. In this special episode of Spotlight, sponsored by TPG Angelo Gordon's middle market direct lending business, Twinbrook Capital Partners, we look at some of the key factors that will affect lenders' ability to manage portfolios in the shifting sands of the current market and what the key differentiators are likely to be for fund managers in the years to come. I'm Andy Thompson, Senior Editor with Private Debt Investor, and I'm joined in this conversation by Drew Guyette, Co-Chief Credit Officer and Senior Partner at TPG Twinbrook, and Kim Trick, Co-Chief Credit Officer, Head of Underwriting and Partner at the business. Drew starts off our discussion with a reflection on the unprecedented conditions faced by the private debt market in recent years. When you reflect on what the last two and a half years presented, there were a number of challenges, whether it be inflation, labor, the rising interest rate environment. And so COVID in many respects was a little bit of a pop quiz in terms of how these companies would react. The following two and a half years continued to demonstrate different variables that inflicted moments of pressure on a variety of different industries. And so Even as we sit here right now and kind of look into the forthcoming 12 months, many of these borrowers have already been challenged. And so I do say that with a tint of optimism on what the next 12 months uh, has in store, because I think many of these companies and borrowers have demonstrated a certain sense of resiliency versus the GFC, uh, again, as a, a last point of comparison, there was no pop quiz. There was no buildup to it years in the past. So it was for many of these companies a first time opportunity to demonstrate how they were going to handle that cyclical period of time. Kim says that with all of that in mind, it does appear that some of the major disruptions of recent years may be fading into the background, such as supply chain challenges and labour cost issues. Of course, interest rates are top of mind. But from an activity perspective, liquidity management is key right now, she says. In light of all the disruptive factors Drew mentioned, moving ahead, lenders are keen to know that the businesses their loans are backing have the cash they need to do more than just keep the lights on during a downturn. There's a lot of focus on portfolios, just given the reduction in New Deal activity in 2023. Everyone is very focused on liquidity and making sure that companies have sufficient capital, not only to grow, but in the pressured environments, you know, maintain the liquidity to pay their P&I and pay payroll, etc. In challenging conditions, investor minds drift towards default rates, which tend to rise with market pressure. But Kim says that not all credits will be affected equally by choppy seas, and certain areas of the private debt space may offer more of a haven than others. I think despite having some optimism, my answer relies heavily on where you play in the market, uh, what sector and what your documentation looks like. I think for larger businesses that are over levered or don't have covenants, for example, or were underwritten on a revenue multiple instead of a cash flow multiple, 
those we would expect to see some pressure just as the full period of increased interest rates is flowing through and the cash flow generation of the business is not as robust as when those structures were originally put in place. I think we're expecting that, you know, for those size businesses, we would expect the default rate to increase. Again, not having financial covenants, the first time you're going to hear about a default there is going to be a payment default. And some businesses have weathered the storm of the last 12 months fairly well. It remains to be seen whether or not they can continue that performance as it doesn't seem likely that rates are going to retreat anytime in the near term. And when you look at businesses in the lower middle market, those structures generally have financial covenants. They're more conservative capital structures to start. So there's less leverage and more cushion built into the structure. And there's tighter definition of EBITDA, which flows through everything throughout that credit agreement. So you're looking at a closer version of what the cash flow generation is to support those P&I payments or even to support growth. So it remains to be seen. I think in a lot of businesses have been tested and there's reason to believe that they're going to be successful in a continued elevated rate environment. But I think there are others that in coming off of the boom of activity after COVID will be tested on the looseness of the structures that were put in place. Of course, a challenging market doesn't mean that all sectors are facing the same challenges. Kim walks us through some of the areas of the market that require an especially adept hand at the moment. I think for, especially at the corporate level, um, on the technology side, that's something that we've seen pretty regularly, again, as a result of a number of reasons. But, you know, those loans were made using revenue multiples, not cash flow multiples. I think anything touching the consumer is a difficult one to predict because they had disposable income and now it seems to be tightening up. We're starting to see unemployment creep up. So that might be a bit more difficult. Media and banking, again, those are more at the corporate level. Within the lower middle market, I wouldn't say that we've seen any particular trends as uh, those businesses are a bit more niche and part of the underwriting process is understanding, really verifying their place in the value chain and their value proposition and their ability to navigate you know, situations and scenarios like this with the additional protection, again, of having the covenants and the more conservative capital structures. Having the right capital structure in place at the outset can solve many of the problems that a lender might run into. Taking that a step further, Drew looks at the bigger picture and the importance of building a strong and resilient portfolio. The first place we have to start is what type of portfolio are you bringing into this moment right now? And to contradict an earlier statement about the benefits of private credit, the other reality is there's probably more flexibility afforded to portfolio construction in private credit. And so by that, I mean, does your portfolio as a direct lender constitute senior loans? Have you done some second lien or mezzanine? Because the outcomes or the pressures you are feeling potentially could be different as a senior lender. Maybe the same experience at the borrower level in terms of the factors that they're trying to work through, but the outcomes for direct lenders will be different depending on the composition of the portfolio that you're bringing in. The second place I would go is just the consistency of Kim's point around underwriting and the constitution of the definition of EBITDA. How honest and how true does that track to actual operating cash flow or cash conversion cycles of the balance sheet? 
you look at what lenders had been doing over the course of the last several years, and the reality is there were some fairly aggressive structuring and concepts being put into place, which means many of these lenders are already bringing a portfolio that is potentially on its heels going into even more pressure or continued pressure. And so I look at that and I think about this current market and environment and think, what are those key factors that affect a lender's ability? I think the reality starts with what are you bringing in because that's how you're going to know how to react and how to well position your borrower. We at Twinbrook would tell you the notion of solely working with private equity firms as the ownership party solves a big portion of how do you react. The notion around human capital, operating partner support, board governance, being able to put that borrower and company in the best possible position to weather these types of storms, that's really the most fundamental and arguably the first mover reaction that all senior lenders will hope for um, in terms of effectuating positive outcomes. When navigating these challenges, the value of experience in actively managing a credit portfolio becomes clearer than ever. I would say the confirmation of past cycles for Kim and I or at Twinbrook would really rely on your ability to get to a situation early and often. And maybe that translates into your ability to monitor the borrower's performance. Maybe it structurally speaks to the type of debt that you are lending into a company and the requirements that they're checking back in with you and whether that's in terms of revolver activity or financial covenants. But generally speaking, in our experience, both in aggressive or benign environments, the quicker you can get in front of a situation and be aware of the situation, the faster you can start that remediation work. And that can be in the form of forecasting, that can be in the form of dialoguing with your constituents as part of the balance sheet on how this situation would be remedied via capital or via an income statement modification, cost takeouts. But that's the real difference maker in our minds. Generally speaking, the more reactive you are, the longer you wait to address a problem, the worse the outcomes will be. I would just add to that as it relates to monitoring your portfolio. It's not just having the human capital, but it's the way that you know they go about doing their jobs every single day. To Drew's point, the level of information that we get through managing the revolver borrowings or having financial covenants that trip before a problem has gotten too severe, that takes horsepower and human capital to monitor. And I think doing that and continuing to invest in the team, in the training, in the development, so that people are recognizing red flags that maybe haven't been as obvious. I've seen it play out time and time again as we've seen, we saw this in the GFC or we saw this in COVID. And here are the things that we did at that time to again, remedy the situation while there's still significant enterprise value left, both for us and for our clients. I think our clients recognize that. They appreciate the amount of due diligence we do up front on a deal and the fact that we're real partners with them and understanding what keeps the business operating and ticking. Because when you get into these more troubled situations, not only have they worked through those similar situations with us in the past, but there's just more of a relationship approach, which I think ultimately results in better outcomes for both us and the sponsor. One of the reasons that experience is so critical 
is that oftentimes when there's an issue with a credit that needs to be addressed, the red flags won't be glaringly obvious. I think in today's environment, there is this common fallacy that naturally a red flag or a catalyst will pop up. It'll be something that is clear and distinct and definable, and we can point to that in terms of what created the troubled situation. I think what Kim and I would tell you that in today's environment, reflecting on inflation, reflecting on labor, reflecting on the interest rate environment, the reality is it's sometimes the small nuances that in more benign periods would otherwise be defined as heartburn. But the reality is in today's market, concepts like working capital, concepts like the strength of your finance and accounting team, changes that take place in your customer base or supplier base are no longer just a surface level heartburn. These generally over several quarters will manifest into a real and pronounced situation. And so, again, going back to the fallacy that red flags are big or are easily definable, it's those small nuances as a direct lender that you have to be paying attention to. And if you are doing it, you will be able to remedy the situation quite quickly and it won't manifest itself into something more severe or pronounced. However, even in challenging conditions, there are bright spots. And as always, there are companies that are outperforming against the odds. Given the current dynamic with muted M&A activity, Kim says that these companies are benefiting. As you look at the New Deal activity, as I mentioned, the M&A volume is still quite low compared to historical periods, but strong credits, interestingly enough, are commanding more competitive terms because there is a shortage of deals in the market and there's a lot of capital both on the private equity side, but also on the private debt side, as groups have not you know, deployed as much as they had historically. So those really strong credits are commanding more competitive terms, pricing, leverage, you know, the legal documentation terms. And from an enterprise value, we've still seen those elevated levels. Uh, we haven't really seen much of a retreat yet in those to date. Looking ahead, Kim and Drew say that banks are likely to continue losing market share to private debt providers as sponsors continue to seek flexible patient capital to support their portfolio company growth plans. And as the market continues to mature, the keys to success in the future, as with other strategic growth areas of the private markets, will likely involve specialisation. Yeah, I think there's still significant dry powder in private equity, over $1.3 trillion. So that in and of itself suggests for lenders that are playing in the sponsor-backed community, significant runway, even just with the capital that's been raised to date. And similarly, as it relates to private debt, we would expect to see the banks continuing to lose share to private debt for all of the reasons that we've discussed, the additional flexibility that they offer the surety to close. And I think having worked through more recent challenges through the COVID environment, private equity firms see the benefit of working with private debt firms versus working with banks. So I think that is one aspect that kind of applies to anyone playing in the area. As you look at other factors that can drive success for individual firms, we're likely to see increased specialization in private debt. So it could be the, you know, the type of debt you're raising, you know, first lien, second lien, mezzanine, etc. It could be continued sector specialization. I think as the overall market grows, groups will find their areas and ways to differentiate. But specialization alone isn't going to be enough. If they want to rise to the top, private debt providers will need to focus on the fundamentals as well. 
So the easiest thing to do is consistency and discipline of strategy. I mean, ultimately, you're trying to prove that what you are doing today, what you have done in the past has staying power into the future. And I think today's high interest rate environment, the yields for fixed income and private credit allow for many opportunities to deploy capital and to do it at a very attractive return on a risk adjusted basis. The question around what differentiators will exist in the future is, can you continue to do that in a mild interest rate environment, in a low interest rate environment? Is your asset class or your tranche of debt still relevant to borrowers going forward? And so I do think it's important as a manager to stay consistent and disciplined into a perennial environment, something that you know consistently produces those opportunities on a risk adjusted basis. And as a result, you're probably going to see groups that brought a strategy like that into this marketplace be successful, be the winners of the asset class, but then also be the survivors in the forthcoming five to 10 years. Drew says that the real challenge for private debt managers as the market continues to mature is in defining exactly what strategy and what piece of the market to focus on. I think the biggest challenge for the asset class is really clearly defining where you exist inside of it. And so by that, I mean private credit is generally this umbrella concept that captures a number of different lenders. And we've already talked a little bit about how there are different places that you can play in senior debt, mezzanine, second lien, hold co, opportunistic credit. There's different size of borrowers that you can lend to that provide for different documentation protections. So as a result, I think what could trip this asset class up is the ignorance or the naivete to specifically defining what part of private credit we're talking about. I think as a result, certain aspects and subsegments of private credit and direct lending are going to perform very well. And you're going to continue to see that very appropriate risk adjusted yield being returned for your LPs. I think there are other strategies that are potentially a little more opportunistic or taking advantage of a moment in time like the one we're experiencing right now. And as a result, you might have more volatile outcomes associated with those direct lenders or fund managers. In volatile times, consistency of approach is arguably more important than ever. Investors still have a healthy appetite for private debt, including for direct lenders, but they want to know exactly how fund managers have positioned themselves to cope with whatever challenges lie ahead. And TPG Twinbrook believes that has a lot to do with focus and experience. Thanks so much to Drew Guyette and Kim Trick for joining us. If you want to hear more episodes of Spotlight, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or check us out at any of PEI Group's various titles online, including Private Debt Investor. I'm Andy Thompson. Thanks for listening.